Well, we're in a sermon series about Lent. It's the 40 days leading up to Easter, and we're calling it a, a season of, of, uh, of transformation. It's a time of healing. It's a time of remembering our mortality, but it's also a time that, that really sh- even more brightly shows the resurrection of Jesus or that we celebrate on Easter. And so the 40 days of Lent are a powerful time to do that. And, and today we're going to look at a story in John chapter 2 where Jesus does what's classically called cleansing of the temple. He cleanses the temple. And it's really, he confronts what's going on in the temple, and then he cleanses the temple. So there's confrontation, and then there's cleansing. And many times those two things go hand in hand, confrontation and cleansing. You know, it kind of stings in the moment, right, when we get confronted about something. We don't usually like that. But it helps when something is dragged out into the light, and we're helped to be shown maybe how we were wrong. You know, it's not a lot of fun, but... We're glad in the, in the long run, you know, it does bring cleansing. I remember the first time, a few times I ever gave a sermon in a church, and um, my wife and I were newly married. And so when you are, when you're a young preacher, you like to pack a lot into as, a sermon as much as you can, probably too much content, right? You just feel this impetus just to, to keep talking. And, and, and I gave the sermon, and I went to my wife, and I, and I you know, I said, hey, what did you think? How'd it go, you know? And, and, and she said, you know... Being a pastor, it's tough. It's tough. And I never forgot that. And it was good. I was glad. I was like, you know what? There's a few things I could have. She was like, you could have worked on this. You could have you know, touched up on this. And it was helpful. It was helpful. It was a cleansing in a way. And it was, it was good. Maybe a more extreme example is the TV show Intervention. If you've ever watched that show. Where friends and family take someone that they love, they care about, and they sit them down. That has a, maybe some sort of addiction problem with drugs or alcohol usually. And they'll talk to them and they want to intervene, right? They, they say to them, we love you, we value you, we, we cherish you, but we're, we're confronting you, but we also want you to get clean. So it can sting in the confrontation, but the result of that can be cleansing, and the Holy Spirit does that in our lives, the work of sanctification, as we say in the Methodist Church, growing in holiness. That's one of the great marks of the Wesleyan movement. And that's how God loves us. That's just how Scripture tells it. If you look at Hebrews chapter 12, it says, For the Lord disciplines those that he loves, and he chastens each one he accepts as his child. That there is a confrontation, a conviction of things, but without that, we wouldn't be growing, would we? We would be stuck. So confrontation helps move us forward to places of cleansing and healing and and deeper relationships with God and and wholeness. So in John chapter 2, we're going to look today as Jesus confronts and he cleanses the temple. Because the the life cycle, if you will, of worship in the temple had really run its course. It was coming to an end. And Jesus said, it's going to get torn down, but I'm going to raise it up in three days with my very body. So the life cycle was coming to an end. Did you know that pastors have a life cycle? It's true. There's four life cycles to a pastor. I'm going to put my name in this, but it could be any. You could insert any preacher you want. The first life cycle is, who is Clark Chilton? Who is this guy? The second is, we want to hear more from Clark Chilton. The The third life cycle of a preacher is, we want a young Clark Chilton. And the fourth life cycle is, who is Clark Chilton? So the temple had a life cycle that ended. It was coming to an end, and Jesus recognizes that as, and 
you know, it's pretty interesting, actually. John chapter 2, this is the first time Jesus cleanses the temple. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't include this in their Gospels. But this is the first time he does it. This is after he turns the, the, wine or the water into wine at the wedding of Cana. This is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke record the cleansing of the temple after what we celebrate on Palm Sunday, where Jesus cleanses the temple. He does it a second time. So it's two times Jesus has done this. What we're going to see in John 2 is the first time. And both cleansings, if you will, confrontations and cleansings, happen in what's called the Court of the Gentiles. It's a large plaza that surrounded the temple structure. And it's, it is what it sounds like. It's where Gentiles, Gentiles would gather to give their sacrifices to God, to have their sins atoned for. Believers in the living God, the Hebrew God. And, but they weren't allowed to enter the temple proper, but they'd have a court. They could gather. It's a large open space. There would be large pits of fire where the animals would be sacrificed. And, and you could walk up and purchase. If you were poor, you buy a pigeon. That's about all you could afford. If you're rich, you might buy a goat or a ram, if you're very wealthy, to atone for your sins. Now, the historian Josephus, would, he said that during his time that he saw over 255,000 lambs would be sacrificed on the court of the Gentiles in a week. Think about that. It was a chaotic scene in the court of the Gentiles during Passover. Thousands of animals going in and out. Not just all sorts of animals, and of course thousands of people. There wouldn't just be one or two tables to take the money. There would be dozens, maybe hundreds of stalls where you could pay to get an animal and your sins atoned for. And not only were the people being priced out of it was difficult to purchase these things, it was just chaos. So as Jesus is walking into the court of the Gentiles, this is what he's seeing. There's no spirituality in this. Nobody's praying. It's just transactional. And this is where the Gentiles, the nations, the ethnos are supposed to meet God? Where they're supposed to pray? This is not at all as it was supposed to be. And so you need a, we need a little bit of temple backstory before we dive into John chapter 2. Really, the original temple is the Garden of Eden, the original sanctuary where God and flesh dwelled in harmony with each other. That is where the original worship of God happened. There's no death. There's no suffering. There's no aging. There's, there's none of that. You're in harmony with God, the shalom of God. The love and the joy is perfect bliss for eternity with God. That is our original design that Adam and Eve and human beings were meant to enjoy with God. And we can enjoy it with God again in the life to come for those who are in Christ. But Adam and Eve, as they are leaving the garden, as they sin and they do what they know they ought not to do, but they do it anyway. And so sin and holiness can't coexist in that space any longer. They get expelled from the garden and as Adam and Eve turn around and they look back at where they have left, where they have left and God has pushed them out of, out of necessity, what is there? Genesis 3.24, he drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim. It's a huge, powerful warrior angel. And a sword flaming and turning to guard the way to the tree of life. 
The same tree of life we see in the book of Revelation, where the leaves bring healing to the nations, is the same tree that we, we thought we could be like God and eat of the fruit, and, and our pride fell as Satan fell. And there's a flaming sword now there guarding the way back in. Now, what's up with that? Why is that there? But, well, for one, if Adam and Eve attempted to get back into God's presence, they'd be cut to pieces. They would go under the sword. They would die. It would kill them. Their blood would be shed. So not only did the sword protect the perfect holiness of God in the sanctuary, the original temple, if you will, it also protected Adam and Eve, the sword of justice. And I can't not to tell you that sin has had horrible consequences on the earth ever since, right? I mean, it's just played itself out over and over again. The news every day can show you that very clearly. And so it's not enough for us to go back to the, the, the garden and say, God, sorry, can I get back in? Like, you can't do that. that that's not going to satisfy the need. Like, think about it this way. Imagine if you were the victim of a horrible, heinous crime, like really, really bad, and the perpetrator that did the crime against you came to you and just said, hey, I'm sorry. All good now? You forgive me? Right? It's not that simple. Like, no, 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 that's an injustice. Like, there has to be something more in place, something more of a sacrifice, something more costly to make that right. Because every time evil has been defeated in this earth and any semblance of peace has happened, somebody had to sacrifice. Someone had to go under the sword, if you will. And God and his mercy allowed for animals to take the place of us. And that is the origin of that first tabernacle with Abraham in the Old Testament. And then on through the temple, there's two temples of those constructions. There would be the place called the Holy of Holies where God's presence would literally come and dwell. The cloud of his presence, the heaviness the power of God's presence would dwell and it would be the people and God would be separated by a thick veil of fabric. And so God would be with his people and once a year on Yom Kippur, a priest would enter into that space, that holy place, be ritually purified and he would bring a blood sacrifice on the altar to offer to God. The animal has gone under the sword and now here on earth we can have a, a, a temporary, if you will, union with God Again, instead of us dying, the animal dies. And there's a, re a restoration of God's presence and healing and shalom and sanctuary, if you will. Now, fast forward to the book of Revelation. The apostle John has lots of visions. One of them, he sees, is the throne of God. And out of the throne comes streams of living water. And there again is the tree of life that we left in the garden. But John sees the throne. And who is on the throne? A slaughtered lamb, a lamb whose blood was slain on the, on the power source and the seat of all authority, of all creation, of all the universe, there's a lamb who has been slain. Jesus took the sword for you and me so that we could be re returned in right relationship with God. So that context, as Jesus is entering into the temple on this day, you can see maybe a bit more why he's so angry, why he's so fired up. Because the people, in a sense, the men that are overcharging for these animals in this whole scene, it's blocking what God intends for people. 
It was standing in the way of Jesus' work as that perfect lamb of God that Jesus said, this temple's going to get torn down, but I'm going to raise it up in three days. That's what he was really fighting for when he, he confronts and he cleanses the temple. So check this out, John chapter 2, verse 13. The Passover, the Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling cattle, sheep, doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Again, hundreds, thousands of people in this situation. He makes a whip of cords. He drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. This would take a long time for one man to accomplish, okay? It's a violent exchange. And then he also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. That's from Psalm 93. The Jews then said to him, what sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, and I really do believe he was pointing at his body when he said this. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, this temple has been under construction for 46 years, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So Jesus walks in and has an extreme confrontation. It's so extreme that those listening to him say, Whoa, 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 man, back up. How can you justify this right now? Show us a sign to show us like you are justified in destroying all of our work. You know, when Jesus confronts people, you either want to crown him as king or you want to kill him. And these guys wanted, I think, deep down to kill him because he was taking away their livelihood in many ways. But here's the crazy part about his confrontation. He's confronting them on a sin they don't even know they're committing. That's a scary place to be. They don't even know they're sinning. They could justify it by saying, you know what, hey, we're just providing a meaningful service to the people here. Don't be so harsh on us. We're helping them have their sins atoned for, Jesus. We're giving them what they want. The temple treasury's getting filled up. The people seem happy. What's the big deal? We're following the letter of the Levitical law, but they were missing the spirit of it. Now, I mentioned this TV show, Intervention, a little while ago. And it, in many ways, when you confront somebody, it's a, it's a mercy. It's love, right? That's draw, driving you to do that. Maybe you've done that in your life. You've confronted somebody that you deeply cared about, and you had to say something to them because you loved them. See, confrontation here with Jesus in the story, I think, is driven by love. It's, it's a mercy to these people, a wake-up call. It's a mercy to them because if it was judgment, if he was simply judging them, he would just cut it off. That's a scarier place to be. When you don't have your sin dragged into the light, and you're just left in the darkness. Because if it was judgment, he would just leave it to die on the vine. That's a sobering place to be, to think that you're doing it all for God and God's happy with me, but he never confronts you on it 
But God in his mercy does and confronts them on the sin they're committing like he does with us and even in our lives. You ever heard that cliche, that statement, love is blind, right? Love is blind. That's the stupidest cliche. Love is blind? True love is not blind. True love is fully aware of what it's doing. True love fully knows the choice it's making. True love is not blind. True love is bound. It's, the heart of God was bound for us when Jesus decided to cleanse this temple. And he's essentially saying with a zealous fire in his eyes and in his belly, he's saying, you're standing in the way of blocking those whom I love. I'm getting ready to make the temple my body. And you're in the way of that. Don't you see that yet? So there's confrontation and then cleansing. I have to wonder, after Jesus cleanses the temple, he drives all these people, all these thousands and thousands of animals, it's a crazy scene. What happened like after that? Did they go, you know what, he's right. I'm sorry. Let's just stop all this. Let's stop making money on people and overcharging for animals. We should just go back to doing something else. Like, did Jesus fix it? Obviously, no. We know he didn't fix it. He temporarily cleanses the temple. Because we see again, like I said, he comes back and cleanses the temple again three years later. So clearly they didn't get it. They went right back to what they were doing before. You know, that's a parallel to all our, our lives. When God convicts us of sin or things we know we shouldn't do, do we just return right back to the place where we were? We get drawn back to those old places. It's easy to do that. It's tempting to do that. You know, to pretend like, you know, that God's grace was good for then, but it's like Paul writes in the book of Romans. Should we keep on sinning because God has forgiven us? By no means. We should seek to live a holier life than that, not, not to abuse the grace of God. And this story, they're clearly abusing God's mercy. His confrontation is a mercy to them. So they don't go back to what they're doing. Because God is, there's a zealousness to, to God. There's a, there's a fire in God's heart for us. And it says that there's zeal consumed him. Exodus 15.3 says, the Lord is a warrior. Deuteronomy 4.14, he is a consuming fire. He's jealous for those he loves. He fights for us. But why the zeal? Why the jealousy? Why the confrontation? Why all of that? Like I said, it's love that, draw, that drives it. Because Jesus knew very, very soon, there's going to be no more need for any of this nonsense anymore. I'm going to go under the sword. My body will take your place. By his standards, well, by God's standards, God knows we can't atone for our sin, for our guilt. An animal isn't enough to atone. There ought to be a perfect sacrifice that would be sent. And that those who choose to receive that gift can then become temples of the Holy Spirit. That's an incredible promise of the gospel is that the Spirit of God will indwell us as temples of the Holy Spirit. We don't talk about it enough in the Methodist Church, but that's our heritage. The Holy Spirit can indwell us as temples. But Jesus knew that he had to do this because we can't do it on our own strength. We can't go under the sword by ourselves. Do you remember the story a few years ago, many years ago, when Lance Armstrong uh, 
lied for so long about not taking steroids, right? One of the best cyclists of all time. And he won the Tour de France like six times or more. I forgot how many times, a lot. And he lied for like 15 years that he didn't, he didn't cheat. Baseball players have done this. Lots of other athletes have done it. Now, the Olympics, they're the most rigorous, right? Like, their standards for testing are, their standard is perfection. And if you fall short of that, you can't compete, right? You're out. Or even when you give blood. They ask you all those questions, like, have you traveled to, uh, since 1975? Have you, you know, whatever. And they ask all these questions. Have you been to foreign countries? And they screen the blood for all these diseases. And the standard, again, perfection. If any imperfection gets in, it can kill somebody. It can give them a disease. So the standard is perfection. Well, what is God's standard for heaven? For that original place, human beings and God. It's also perfection. And we can't do that on our own ability. But the hard part is, the scary part is, is that a lot of people today, even some Christians I know, would say that, you know what, just being good enough, just being a good person is enough. But that's not what the Bible tells us. If God would just say, just be a good person, then in a sense it would allow sin to continue on into the kingdom of heaven. But God has effectively quarantined sin to the earth. Sin and holiness do not mix. They cannot coexist. We would essentially pollute other places with the sin that we have, that we're born into, and God doesn't want that to happen. So God has quarantined it. But what has Jesus done? What remarkable work has he done for you and for me, for anyone that would trust in him? Yes, the sword, it kept us from God's presence. It protected God, in many ways protected us. But what has Jesus done? Look at Philippians 2, starting in verse 5. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Which is saying, he's really saying that Jesus, even though he's God, he didn't lord over it, that, over people. And, but quite the opposite. He gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, Jesus chose to become a servant to become a slave, God lowered himself to go under the sword for us. He didn't die for us because we are lovely, but he died for us in order to make us lovely. What if your relationship with God is not based on your performance, but it's based entirely on his performance? What if your relationship with God is not based on your righteousness, but on his? What if your relationship with God is not based on your ability to get past the flaming sword, if you will, but his ability? Every other religion in the world says, do this, do that. You'll have God consciousness. You'll grow in this way. Do, do, do. 
Christianity stands apart and says, it's done. I've done it. He's done it. He's opened the door. That's why he says, I'm the door, I'm the gate, I'm the way. He's done it. He's opened the door back to, to peace and wholeness with God. Here we have someone in the person of Jesus Christ. Here we have someone who has completely and utterly given himself to you and for you and me. And yet, many still fail to give themselves utterly and completely to him. And we continue to try to skirt by on our own good merit, our own righteousness, our own ability, and maybe try to be a good person. But we can't. And Jesus, I don't think he wants us to lie to ourselves like that. And some might say, you know what? I'm scared to give myself to God like that. I'm scared to give myself to another person like that, let alone to God, to be surrendering of all that. That that sounds hard. But don't be. Don't be scared of that. If you come to him as the lamb, he will defend you like a lion. He will defend you over hell and death and judgment, and he confronts and he cleanses, driven by love, simply to be with you and me forever.